You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. All right. Uh, Well, as many of you uh, probably know, I got married when I was 12 years old. Uh, That's... It's not entirely true, but it felt that way to me. I was 19, 20 years old when I met this girl named Kelly at A&M, and I was just over the moon, man. I just couldn't believe it. And I somehow duped her into start dating me. This was like a huge win for me. And so I'm, uh, uh, I'm talking with her, we're, we're, you're kind of running the race together, and I, I know from the jump, this is the girl I'm going to marry. In fact, I wrote in my journal the day before I asked her to date me, I'm going to marry this girl. Fact. I did. Uh, now, I, uh, there was a problem, though, kind of in the journey for me. The problem was I really did feel like I was 12. I just felt like I am, I am unqualified for this moment. And so I did, uh, in that moment, what I do in so many moments of my life when I feel those things, I call up a mentor. So I had a friend in my life uh, whose name was Sam. He's about a generation older than me. And I called him to just kind of process some of, the, uh, some of this with him. And I, I got him on the phone. I just said, hey, man, okay, so there's a girl. I, I love her. I want to marry her. I feel all those things. He's like, that's great. I'm like, yeah, the problem is I just, I feel like a little kid, and I don't really know what to do. And I was going to kind of move on in the conversation. And he stopped me right there. He says, hey, stop. Okay. He said, don't ever say that again. Why are you angry? I don't know what's happening. He, he said, don't ever call yourself a little kid again. You are a man of God. You have encouraged me in my faith. You have strengthened me. You have helped convict me of sin. You have helped lead me closer to Jesus. I don't know a single kid on earth that's done that to me. But I know lots of men that have, and you have. So you stop calling yourself a kid because you're a man. Then I proposed to my wife, and uh, we uh, did the thing, because I, I, that's exactly what I needed to hear. I was confronted, this little scared shell of a man was, was confronted all of a sudden with my identity, with an identity statement about who I was. I had another person look at me and call out of me the things that God had put into me. He, he was able to say, you are this, and it helped give me the courage to put a ring on it like a man. And, and, and that's what happened. Now, wh- why am I telling you, what, is, what does that have to do with 1 Corinthians at all? Well, we are back in the text. If you haven't been tracking with us, we're in chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians, and, and we're back at it again. The Corinthians got another problem, classic Corinthians, right? This is all they do, it seems, every chapter. They've got another issue. And Paul's looking at them again in this chapter, and he's doing some of that corrective work. He's trying to help them uh, correct themselves. But what's amazing is how he does it. He doesn't just swoop in and say, hey, that's bad. Don't do that. He doesn't do that. Instead, what we're going to see is he calls out their identity. He actually looks at them and says, hey, remember who you are, church. Remember who you are because he knows that when we see our identity, it will change our activity. And so that's what we're doing today. We're going to look at this new problem 
in the life of the church in chapter six. And then we're going to watch how our understanding of, of who we are in Christ is meant to change us and how we relate to each other and how we interact with, any, with each other. That's what we're doing in this passage today. So let's take the problem first and figure out our way through that. What is the issue that Paul's addressing? What's the problem? What's going on? Well, there's really kind of two things happening. Uh, the first is this, that members of the church in Corinth had beef with other members of the church in Corinth. They had beef, that issue. And then, second problem is they were taking that beef and they were going to court about it. They were, they were suing each other about it. So he says, when one of you has a grievance against one another, there's part one, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? So you see the two things going on. They've got beef, they've got issues, and then they're taking those issues and they are uh, suing each other in secular law courts. They're going to local judges and they're asking those local judges to rule on matters between these Christians in the church. And Paul hears about this and he, and he, is, he is appalled. He's, he's aghast at the whole thing. Now why? We got to answer the question why. What, what is so bothersome to Paul about this situation? Well, uh, let's think about it together. Is he, um, because there have been some bad interpretations of this little text right here. Is, is it that he's shocked that Christians would ever sort of cross paths with the government? Because the government's just, they're the baddies and we got to stay away from them. Like the don't tread on me sort of spirit. Is that, is that what's happening here? Some people have come to this text and they've thought that. And, and they read this and they go, okay, so what Paul's saying is he's showing us that, that kind of government intervention is bad, government, government's bad, and the church should sort of handle everything in-house by itself on a ranch somewhere in Wyoming growing beets. Like we just do something over here, right? That, that sort of spirit. Now, is that what's going on? The answer is no. Settle down, my little anarchist friend. That is not, that's not what's happening here. How do we know? Well, because Paul tells us that's not what he means in another one of his letters. So if you're familiar at all with the book of Romans, you know in the Romans chapter 13, Paul is addressing the issue of government. And what he's going to say is that government is actually a gift from God. It's not a hindrance. It's a gift from God. He says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities for there's no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. So the first thing we got to just make sure we know is this isn't an indictment on the government. This is not Paul. Paul is not upset that we're interacting with the Fed, right? That's not what's happening here. Okay, so what is happening? Well, again, what is he bothered by? Is it that, uh, is he appalled that, that Christians would ever go to court? Maybe it's a legal thing he's got issue with. Like the courts that like us, we should never have any business in, in a courtroom. Is that it? I don't think so. I think that goes too far as well. So f from what we can tell in the text, we're dealing here with something like um, low-level civil cases, probably financial in nature. So if you look at verse seven, it'll say, why not rather be defrauded? So there's something like fraud going on here, financial fraud. So it's as whatever's going on in terms of the lawsuit, it's, it's, um, it's maybe property related or financial related. But here's the point. Somebody's getting ripped off. That's what's happening in the church. Someone is getting ripped off in the church and they're taking each other to something like um, small claims court, right? Court TV. That's what's happening here. So these are um, civil cases, not criminal cases. Now I'm, I'm belaboring this because it's an important distinction because we need to keep in mind, uh, crimes still need to be tried, right? If you murder somebody I love, you will see me 
pointing at your face from the witness stand, right? It's not, so it's not that the court system is bad. There's a place for the judicial system within a Christian worldview. So I just need, I'm just establishing that too, because sometimes we get it twisted and we get all isolationist-y about this text and homestead and all that stuff. If you homestead, forgive me. Uh, that's another sermon. Uh, that's not Paul's problem. What is Paul's problem? Paul's problem that he has with them is that they have forgotten a crucial piece of information as they're dealing with each other. And what Paul's going to say is, listen, church, you have forgotten your present identity and a future reality, and that's gotten you involved in some foolish activity. That's what he's done. You're, You're blind to who you are. And you're blind to what's in store for you one day. And if you could see that, it would change things about how you handle conflict. It would change something. So that's, that's where he's going today. He, he, there's a present identity and a future reality that we need to see and kind of absorb for us to be able to change and move away from foolish activity. So let's talk about that present identity first. The first thing that he reminds us of is our present identity. So again, he says, when one of you has a grievance with one another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? So I wonder if you, uh, you heard it. Paul is calling our attention to who we are. He's addressing his audience and he uses a word to describe him. And the word he described him by is saints. He called them saints. He's gonna say that same word again in verse two. He used that word the first time in chapter one to talk about this church. Now that may surprise some of us because of how our sort of modern culture thinks of the word saint, right? Lots of halos and, and lots of this thing and doing, right? There's an icon that when we think saint, we don't think often what the Bible has in mind. So even in Roman Catholicism, for example, a saint is definitely a special rank of Christian. It is, it is something that you arrive at. You got to meet some benchmarks first, right? You got to get some miracles under your belt. The Pope's got to rubber stamp that thing. Like all those things have to be in play for you to actually step into sainthood. But that's not actually how the Bible, the New Testament, is going to talk about what a saint is. When the Bible uses the word saint, it comes from a Greek word that just means this. It means holy one or set apart one or distinct from the others one or someone designated for a a new and a special purpose by the person in charge of them that's what that word carries with it and here's what's amazing about it if you're a Christian the Bible says of you you're a saint Saint Jimmy Saint Buck right that that's I don't know who Buck is I don't know that was weird but, but that we, like we are saying, and here's the thing, there's no preconditions because it's not predicated on what you've done and your performance. It's predicated on who you know. If you are in relationship with Jesus, you are, by virtue of that, a saint. That's an amazing thought that God has chosen you and he has now redeployed you for a new purpose, right? That, that's actually why we say the thing we do in our baptism services. You were, if you were here a couple weeks ago, uh, after every baptism, what do we say? We look at the people and we say, hey, you are chosen by God. And we joyfully embrace you as family and send you out to make disciples. We're, we're saying that you're a, you are a set-apart one now. You have a new deployment from your commanding officer. Your, your path is different than it used to be. You're being deployed by God for a new purpose 
So, so pregnant in that, that word saint is that kind of idea that there's a new purpose for us. We don't live like the world does anymore. But it says it's really more than, than that. There's a lot of things that come with being a saint, being somebody who is chosen by God for that. We don't just have a new purpose. We have a new mind, according to Paul. So listen to verse five. Listen to his language here. He says, can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? Now, that's interesting. He kind of states it in the negative, but Paul clearly assumes that there should be wise people in the church to adjudicate these issues. Why would Paul, why would Paul assume that there would be wise people within the church? The answer is because he told us there would. Do you remember just a few weeks ago, we were in chapter two. Do you remember what chapter two was about? What the energy was in it? He was saying, hey, for you to understand the gospel, you need a new mind. And thanks be to God, he's given it to you in Christ. He has given you his Holy Spirit. Every person who trusts in Jesus is filled with the spirit of Jesus and is now given what the text says in the last verse of chapter two, the mind of Jesus, the mind of Christ. We actually have a, a new mind. It's the mind of Christ. Who is Christ? Well, Christ is what 1 Corinthians 1.30 says of him. Because of him, you are in Christ Jesus who became for us wisdom from God. Jesus Christ himself, the Bible says, is wisdom. And the spirit of Jesus Christ dwells in you. Are you putting this together? So, so you, God lives in you. God, God have, why are you not blacking out? That is... God, God lives in you. Let me say this another way. If you're a saint, the wisest being in the universe, the, the judge of all the earth dwells in your chest, lives inside, animates and informs you from the inside. And you're telling me you can't solve the problem of Larry ripping off Harry for 50 bucks. You can't solve that? And you got to farm that out to a dude who doesn't know God to crack this case for you? That's what you got? Do you feel the insanity of this to Paul? This is why Paul's going, this is absurd. How dare you do this? It doesn't make any sense to him. This is, a, this is like a Supreme Court justice picking up the phone and calling Judge Judy and going, hey, can you help me out with this case? I just, I don't, I don't know. It's tough. I just, what are these words, right? So put down the phone. You're, you're a Supreme Court justice, right? This is, a, this is Tom Brady calling me for really anything, but especially to be able to th throw a spiral football. It's like, Tom, I can't, my son taught me how to throw a spiral. You are a spiral football, Tom Brady. Just go be you. You've already got it in you. You've already got it in you. You, you, you can hack it. It's going to be okay. This is how Paul is feeling about this moment. It's ridiculous to him. You have the mind of Christ, Christ who is wisdom. You're a saint. So why are you taking your problems to these jokers? You see that? Why are you doing this? And just to show us how absurd the situation is, he pulls out the big guns. He goes, hey, it's not just your present identity that you're blind to. You need to see the future reality you're gonna step into as well. So he says this, or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining 
to this life. Uh, <laughs> where do you start? Um, okay, we don't have time to unpack all that that means, but let me just say a couple things about it. If you've trusted in Jesus in this room, there is a future coming for you that you can't even fathom. If that's true, that means there's something awaiting you in the future that you can't even, it, it feels stupid to even put it on paper. It's so, it's so unspeakable, the glory of the things that are coming for you. Listen to how Jesus himself talks about your future if you're a Christian. He's talking to a church in Revelation chapter three where he's trying to encourage them and strengthen them and give them a vision for how to endure to the end. And here's what he says about those who endure to the end. Revelation 3.21, he says, to the one who conquers, just, 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 listen. I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. You, what do you want me to, what, you're going to sit with God on his throne, on his throne forever. You are, he just said, everyone who trusts in me will be a vice regent of the universe. Of the universe. You're going to rule and Christian. Do you know this about yourself? Is this the first time any of you are hearing this in the Bible? You, your future with Jesus looks like you ruling and reigning with him forever. Forever. Listen to how 2 Timothy 2.12 talks about it. If we endure, we will also reign with him. Heaven is not just one big worship concert where Tomlin's playing the hits. That's not what it is. It is you reigning with Jesus Christ. When you die, you will be reigning with God Almighty. Does that, yeah, a woo. Yeah, what are you talking about, woo? We should all get up and just start doing a crazy praise dance. This is craziness, is what I'm saying. It's crazy how mind-boggling this is. And listen to this, part of what reigning means is that in some mystical way, we are going to participate with Jesus Christ in the judgment of the world. I don't know. What, you are gonna participate with Jesus Christ in the judgment of angels. I literally don't know what that means. I know you thought you might get some insight this morning. It's the only verse in the Bible like it. So you can't go hunt for other stuff. It's just, it's just there. Just, Paul just drops that bomb and moves on. You think he'd pull the car over and be like, and by judge angels, I mean. He doesn't do that. He just goes, hey, you guys get it. And then he moves on. What is that, Paul? It's so crazy. But here's the thing. Paul, Paul doesn't need to explain himself on the how because the point isn't how we're to do these things. The point is that we will do these things. That's his point. He's saying, look at what your father is entrusting to you one day. You've got a new identity. You're a saint. You're already flying so high above these silly little issues. And not only that, there's a future coming for you one day. You're going to soar above them. You are going to soar. But here's the problem, guys. You've forgotten it all. You don't realize any of it. So it's, your feet are just stuck right here on the ground. It's the movie Hook, right? With Robin Williams as a middle-aged Peter Pan. 
right? And the, and the whole problem is he hasn't been to Neverland in so long that he's forgotten that he's Peter Pan. So he just thinks, well, I guess I'm just a middle-aged white guy who's afraid of heights. It's like, no, 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 you're not. You're, you're Peter Pan. You're, you're tights. You're flying. You're, you're the whole thing, right? And so the whole movie is, is his friends trying to look at him and convince him, no, you, you're Peter, right? You can fly. You can fly. You, you, it's... Peter Pan isn't afraid of heights. Heights is what you do, Peter. And what Paul is doing to us here is he's looking at us and going, heights is what you do. This is what you do. This is who you are, church. You're meant to soar. You're going to judge the world one day. You're going to judge angels one day. You've got spirit inside. You gave you the mind of Christ. Why are you farming out these issues? You can handle it. You're going to be okay. I'm so convinced that most of the drama we experience in this life as Christians, inside of us, all of that, most of the drama we experience is, is because we are not convinced of our identity and our future. We're just not settled on who we are, who God's made us to be, and what he has planned for us. If you knew it, if you knew, if you, if you were so persuaded, he really does love me. He's got me. He bought me. He put his spirit within me. He's given me a new mind. He's given me a new purpose. And one day he's going to let me step into glory where I get to rule and reign as VP of the universe. If you knew that about yourself, things would change. We would stop being so petty, fighting, suing, grumbling, lusting, coveting, because we wouldn't need any of those things because we would realize what the scriptures have always been telling us, you already have it. If you have Jesus, you already have it. You already have it, so you're gonna be okay. You're gonna soar if you can see this. You'll be free not to settle every score. Do you see that? You'll be free. And that's why Paul can end by giving one of the most just countercultural pieces of advice that our brains can imagine. Look at verse seven. He goes, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you, right? So he's saying, hey, let's put aside for a moment the whole like you're bringing each other to, to secular courts and, and doing that before unbelievers. Let's put that aside for a moment. Just the fact that you want to sue them, just the fact that you want to go to court, is a loss for you. You've already lost, is what he's saying. Then comes his advice. <laughs> oh, this advice. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? Why not, why not rather? Paul just looked at you. The counsel of the scripture is this. Get ripped off for Jesus. That's what he said. The, my Bible just told me, yeah, yeah, just get, why not get ripped off, guys? Just get ripped off. You own everything. Who cares? Just get ripped What's 50 bucks? What's 100? What's 1,000? What's 10,000? What's 100? It, it doesn't matter if you own the world. It really, does it matter that much? You go, it's impossible. No, it's not impossible to think this way. Not if you knew, for instance, you had a, a, a billion dollar inheritance coming your way. I bet you could get over a pickpocket. I bet you could get over that moment. 
Did you guys hear uh, last week, it was in the news, uh, 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 Bill Gates's daughter, Phoebe, uh, she, uh, what she did in a coffee shop, um, the barista in New York City coffee shop, double charged her for her drink. Double, so charged twice for her drink. Did you hear what Bill Gates' daughter Phoebe did to the barista in that moment? Anybody read the article from last week? Anyone? No, you didn't? Me neither. Because <laughs> it didn't happen. Because she's Bill Gates' daughter. So even if it did happen, who cares? Who cares? It's five bucks. I'm a kajillionaire. It doesn't matter. It would never be a story because she wouldn't do anything. I got gotcha. you. <laughs> please, please see with me that you are a billion trillion times wealthier than her if you've placed your hope and your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Please see that. We have everything we could ever need all of the wealth, all of the responsibility, all of the grandeur, all of the God we could ever want. We have the Lord himself, Jesus, the God-man came, gave his life as a ransom for us, expired on the cross, rose the third day in our place, took on our sins, gave us his righteousness, gave us his spirit, gave us his mind, gave us a new vision for our life, a new destiny for our life, and is gonna take us one day into heaven and let us sit with him on his throne with his father forever and ever. We don't need our pound of flesh anymore. You don't need it. Because I'm trusting the one who gave his flesh for me. Do you see? I don't, so I don't need to get mine. You've been hearing this over and over in this book. This is because this is a really big deal to Paul. Let me just, I'm going to close with this. I'm going to give you two illustrations on how this works out in a person's life and then we're done. The first is from the Bible. It's from the book of Hebrews. If you want to turn there with me, you can. Hebrews chapter 10 Uh, starting in verse 32, and listen to how similar this is to what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians. So Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews is trying to give courage to a persecuted church, right? They're they're wilting and the heat of persecution is coming on and and he's trying to give them some legs to endure. And so the writer of Hebrews says this to them. He says, but recall the former days. Think back. When after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Sometimes being publicly uh, uh, exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison and listen, you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Do you hear how similar that is? You were enlightened by God. My identity was changed. My mind was changed. And you could see your future. I know I've got a better and a more enduring possession coming for me. So you could joyfully accept people robbing you blind. With a smile on my face as they take my couch. That's what it said. This is how the gospel changes a human heart. Jesus dies for my sin, gives me a new identity, a new life, and a new future. And so I'm gonna be okay if it all goes down. I have everything I need in him and even more when I die. Last story. Watchman Nee. 
uh, famous Chinese Christian evangelist from the first part of the 20th century. He tells the story of a Chinese Christian uh, who owned a rice paddy, a rice field, uh, uh, right next door to his neighbor who also owned one, unbelieving neighbor over here, a Chinese Christian here, and he owned the rice paddy. And the way a rice field works, rice paddy works, is you got to irrigate it constantly. You kind of flood the ground with water, and so the, uh, in the flooding of the ground, it, it irrigates your crops, and that's that what allows your rice to grow. And so in order to do this, now this was back in the day, the, the, the Christian had to um, get on this bicycle-like thing, which was a manual pump, and he, he pumped out water from the earth and it irrigated his crops, right? So his field got full of water and that's how uh, his crops were able to be sustained. Now, what he didn't know, but eventually found out is that his neighbor, his unbelieving neighbor, saw him do this and when he went back inside, he would day after day go and remove the planks of the dam that kept his water out from his field. He removed them. So all the water cascaded down from the Christian's field onto his neighbor's field, watered his crops and left his bone dry. And the Christian got wind of this, discovered this, and he didn't know what to do because as you can imagine, this is your livelihood. This is, this is crops, this is agriculture, this is how I make my living. He knows that if this goes on, much longer. I'm, I'm not going to have anything to sell. I'm not going to have anything to eat. And, uh, and so he's asking advice from his friends what to do. Some of his friends give him counsel. He's like, oh, well, here's what you do. Uh, you wait up one night, you catch him, and you beat him. I mean, that's effective. Uh, maybe not exactly what uh, I had in mind. I'm going to keep praying about it. Thank you, though. Um, so he does. He keeps praying. He seeks the Lord on, on this, and he finally feels like the Lord, after about seven days, kind of gives him a, a sense of what to do. And so on the eighth day, that morning, he wakes up way before dawn, and he goes out to the pump again, and he pumps the field, and he floods it with water, and then he walks over and removes the planks and lets the water cascade down off his land onto his neighbor's field. Then he goes back to the pump and pumps again his field. And he does this every day. For three weeks, he does this. And at the end of three weeks, both fields are doing great. Go figure. And his neighbor is so dumbfounded by this that he comes over to the guy's house, knocks on the door, and he says, if this is what Christianity is, I want in. And he becomes a Christian. See, this is the Christian life knowing that we have everything we could ever need, everything we could ever want, right now and then how much more in the future. And so I don't need to protect all my assets. I don't need to guard myself at every turn. I don't need to settle every score with you. I don't need my pound of flesh. I can not only joyfully accept being slighted, being ripped off, being taken advantage of, I can now actually be free to work for your flourishing. I have such a wealth inside me, such a well of promises from God, such a fixed sense of my identity in God that I'm gonna be okay. I can just draw that bucket up from this well and there's something there for me to drink. I don't need it from the outside. I have it here. I have Jesus Christ and he's enough for me. So I can serve you now. I can live in a way that blesses you now. It will change everything for you to see this. This is how the Christian lives and moves. And if you're not living and moving like this, the question for you is, is there anything in that well there? Or are you 
Are you dry? Do you know who you are in Jesus? Do you know how much he loves you? Do you know what he has for you in the future? Or do you notice about yourself, I'm always just trying to get mine. I'm always trying to settle scores. I'm always always angsty. I'm always contentious. If that's you, you don't see who you are and you don't see what's coming. You need to repent. Ask God to give you eyes for this. This is how God means to free us, by giving us eyes of a bigger promise, of a better reality, of a brighter future than we could ever imagine. It will change us, and when it changes us, it will change the world. Let's pray. Father, you have put a a well in our chest. You've given us what we need. What, What person on earth, God, can respond to thievery and respond to being slighted and respond to being taken advantage of like this other than someone who knows this is not all I have. I have something brighter coming and I have Jesus now and forever. And God, to the degree that we're not living like that and we don't see that, God, we're sorry. Would you change us? Those of us in this room who say we trust you, but we struggle in this, would you give us grace by your spirit now to just settle today? I really do have everything I need in it. I do. I can let that thing go with that person. I can let it go. I can release my hands from around it. I can even allow myself to get ripped off. And God, I I, I just don't know who's in the room, but for the person in the room who hasn't met you yet, who who only knows about you in theory and is hearing, oh, this, you're real. Like you can actually satisfy me in such a way that I can be okay in this life. I just, God, would you save them? Would you help them to cast themselves on you? Would you help them to turn from their sins, see your finished work on the cross done on their behalf so that they could have a bright future with you? God, would you please do that in them? And God, as we sing, we want to sing from the belly. We want to sing from the heart at at our God who is enough for us. You are enough for us. You are enough for us. You satisfy us. We have all we need. So God, as we sing, may be true of our hearts as well as our mouths. In Jesus' name.